Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show 151. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, it is the first week of the month, so that means it is then and now. Two great stories from two amazing writers. One, one of the old-time classics there, James Blish, goes up against new hot puppy on the block, Jason Sanford. Which one will you like? Let me know. I have the results as well from last week's competition. That will all be revealed before the first short story. So this week is show 151. Promised you last week that I would list the writers that are in the new Starship Sofa Stories Volume 2. Well, that's coming up. We also, do you know what day it is? How many days it's left till the Hugo announcement, the winner of the Hugo Awards. We've also got that. So I'll give you a little heads up what I'm going to do on Sunday for that. But for now, coming up, this is what we've got coming up in this week's show. We have Mr. Fred Heimbaugh with his The Graphic Fan, a second instalment looking at the graphic novel. Then we have a little interview with Jason Sanford. Next up is the main fiction, which is The Ships Like Clouds Risen by Their Rain by Jason Sanford. Then we've got another fact article by Jim Mowat. Jim's actually talking about day 42, and he'll go into everything about day 42, what you should be doing. Then we have Main Fiction again, which is James Blish's One Shot, and it's narrated by Fred Heimbaugh as well. There you go. A fun show. I hope you agree. So before all that, let's just talk about the Hugos, because it is. <laughs> oh my god it's a few days away now once once you listen to this show and 
I, I honestly, like you say, I'm either way. I'm happy as Larry. Do you know what I mean? If we don't win, then you know Starship Silver's names has been kind of mixed in with all them kind of the greats there with the Hugos and everything like that, and it's been the first one. Do you know? So I'm sure I've won really, anyways, in my eyes. You know what I mean? And I've always kind of said that. Yeah, granted, if I'm if we we lost, you know, I'd be gutted. Do you know what I mean? I'll be truthful there. It's it's a it's an amazing achievement. I would like to kind of win it. You know, I'd like to win it for everyone. Do you know what? That would be fantastic. I'm not going to be at the Hugo Awards. You know what I mean? For God, how much would that cost to get over there? I, don't, I just don't know how people afford it. But we have Grand Stone is going to go there. Oh, and that's the, that actually just made my week as well. Grant has won best short story in the Julius Vogel competition. He came joint first for his best short story. I forget what it's actually called now, Grant. But how a little? Come on. Round of applause, take a bow, Grant, for Grant Stone winning winning that. That's just amazing. Grant's going to be at the Worldcon, and Grant's going to pick up if, you know, I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm booking this lot, of pick it up, Grant. We haven't won the bloody thing yet, but Grant's going to be there representing Starship so far. So get a suit, Grant, get that tie nice and tight, wash it behind the ears. So what am I planning to do? You know, I had at the beginning... I had all sorts of these kind of ideas of having everyone on doing this all, this kind of live, oh, email dropped in there. <laughs> had all these kind of live ideas. And the more it's getting near, do you know what, even I had like wacky ideas for me and Grant doing something with, the, you know, if there was ever a chance we had to we'll win in the acceptance speech. And the more it's getting closer and closer, the more <laughs> I'm coming recluse and thinking, oh, no, no. So, it's my intention, just because, as it happens, I'm in the house on that day, in that morning, by myself. So, that's great. So, what I'm intending to do, and whether I'll even put it out or not, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? I don't know how it's going to go, you know, this live kind of thing. I'm just going to sit and talk and listen to you and watch the kind of, the winners come through on, on the find, the feed or whichever feed. Con Reporter, Cheryl Morgan, check out that fantastic little service she does. And I'm just going to talk, you know what I mean, go through it. And hopefully, if if I, I don't know, you know, if I want, I'll, fingers crossed, I'll try and put it up. Do you know what I mean? I'll not be kind of too niggly about things. Because I don't know how I'm going to react. That's what I'm, you know what I mean? And obviously, there's going to be a lot of swear words in there because I'm a highly emotional guy when it comes to things like this. And uh, the language just runs. So my tension is, if, or when you know I've recorded this kind of show, watching watching it live, the Hugo events, I'll just put it up on the Sunday. So if you get that show on the Sunday, that'll be like a special on the Hugo Awards. And I well, you know, I'm, I'm even struggling now. That's how bad it's going to be on that day. I don't know what to say. You know, yes, I would love to win. I've already won in my eyes, you know what I mean? So we'll just have to wait and see. It'll be an amazing thing. Bloody hell for a podcast, you know. And I've always wanted Starship Silver to be this kind of community podcast, you know what I mean? This this kind of little service. And that's exactly what it is, you know what I mean? So we'll just have to wait and see. But I hope if I'm feeling, you know, if I'm kind of, if I'm kind of taking tablets and I'm all right, we'll hopefully get a show out on Sunday. <laughs> That's one bit. Right now, Starship Sofa Stories Volume 2. This is the lineup for writers. I hope you, when, when this comes out, honestly, there's been 
oh, some work gone into that you know, from everyone. This is like a multi-talented production of Starship. So there's so many people being involved and it's going to be so special, you know, especially with the extras that we've got as well. But this is the lineup. We have, as you heard last week, Paul DeFillipo with the personal Jesus. That's going to be in there. Jason Sanford is going to be in there. Jeff Carlson, John Kessel, Tobias Bakel, Mary Rosenblum, Lucia Shepard, Ted Kudmatska, Pat Cadigan, Neil Gaiman, Adam Roberts, Nancy Cress, Sean Williams, Corey Doctorow, Jeff Vandermeer, Larry Santuro, Stephen R. Donaldson, Gwyneth Jones, China Mieville. Yes, you're thinking, oh, all them people have donated work. We've got, I'm not joking as well, some amazing bonus material, like pictures from artists as well. Wow, you know, and days more into the artists because it kind of recognises the name, but I'll give you, a, and I'll go through the artists that are in there. Jeff Murray, Boo Cook, Paul Rivershear, Rory Kutz, Evan Jensen, Daniel Zelg, Brian Woods, Lee Gallagher, Anton Emin, Cliff Chang, Jim Murray, Bob Eglinton, Tom Keir, Len Paratla, Daniel Sierra, Chris Butler, Mark Heppel, Ben Wooten. You know what I mean? If you know your artists, you know they're pretty good. You know, they've all got some pedigree behind them as well. So that is the artists and writers lineup. Trust us, this is going to kind of be stunning for Starships over when this comes out. We're doing the proof in there now and it's 10-10-2010 release date. Look out for that. And I'll have a little chat later on with Jason Sanford about that as well and his story that he's got in today's show. So first off, we have the second one in the graphic fan fact article by our good friend, Fred Heimbaugh. You'll have to excuse Fred with his oral exciter as well. We've had to do a little bit tweaking on his oral exciter. Fred, what's up with that machine of yours? Hello, sofa people. Fred Heimbaugh here. The graphic fan is back. And on behalf of all the peace-loving people of planet Earth, I bring you greetings. I'm struggling to get up to speed here to become the kind of uh, expert in graphic novels that my position here on the show implies. I'm not there yet. That consummation has not been achieved yet. So in the meantime, uh, for this month, I'm just going to present a hodgepodge, uh, a collection of things that have caught my eye, things that have grabbed me, but there's no particular rhyme or reason why I'm selecting them. Many of them have been around for years, so some of you who truly are experts are going to be, uh, once again, a little bit bored and impatient with me. I'll start off with a really quirky graphic novel called City of Glass, which began life as a strange little novella by Paul Auster. The story is so quirky that you wouldn't think a graphic novel adaptation would really add anything to it. Um, Just for an example, uh, the author appears as a character in the novel. Uh, But creators David Matsukeli and Paul Karasik have created a look that integrates seamlessly with the theme of the novel, which is the impermanence of identity. It's hard to imagine the novella working without the graphics although it must have. The art plays with scale. So, for example, uh, in a series of panels, a row of city buildings are reduced, frame by frame, to a series of abstract squiggles, 
which then resolve themselves into a pattern of a fingerprint on a window, which overlooks the same city that contained the row of buildings. Games like this one overpopulate this comic and serve as a seminar of graphic novel effects that could be something straight out of Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud, which I mentioned last month, the Bible of graphic novel techniques. City of Glass is not sci-fi, but it's built on the framework of the hard-boiled detective genre, so Starship Sofa fans should enjoy it um, as an example of something from a sibling genre, I guess I would put it. Speaking of detectives, I've absolutely loved, loved, loved Death Note, which is a manga series, which means it's from Japan, uh, that has been huge in that country for several years now. Uh, five or six, I think, or maybe a few more. I expect many of you already know about it, but for those like me who are struggling to get in the know, I'll help make that happen. The story defines the genre of psychological thriller. I should say it utterly closes the book on the genre. It's what Alfred Hitchcock would have done if he had had ten times the brains. It also can be characterized as magical realism, the kind of fantasy, well, maybe I should call it urban fantasy, although there's no girls in tight pants who fight werewolves, so maybe it doesn't belong in that category. But it feels very much like science fiction, even though it's not exactly. Uh, It's got Shimagami in it, which are Japanese gods of death. One of those drops a notebook on Earth, and the notebook gives the kid who finds it the power to kill anyone he wants simply by writing that person's name in the notebook. The story gets very complicated very fast. Light is the name of the kid, Light. And this absolute power corrupts Light absolutely and with astonishing speed. He starts referring to himself as the god of the new world. Yeah, and we're talking serious power trip here. Meanwhile, the world's top detective, known only as L, is on the case. Since L is a pseudonym, you can't write his name in the book because it's unknown. These two characters begin communicating with each other via the very low bandwidth channel of human deaths killing as a kind of bizarre communication medium. Uh, Both of them are geniuses. Both dazzle you as they come to understand the other. In the end, they enter into a bizarre and improbable friendship. Now, I have to admit, I've only read the first four of the 12 books in the series. However, I have watched the entire anime series from Japanese TV. And that follows the manga series extremely closely. So I feel safe in giving either version, the manga or the anime, absolutely my highest recommendation. It's called Death Note, people. Death Note. Remember that. Okay, now I'm going to give you a dose of real science fiction. I've been a fan of the webcomic called Outsider for several years now, and I'm still waiting for the creator, Jim Francis, to finish it. It's a good old-fashioned space opera where the hero struggles to represent the human race before a collection of advanced alien races caught up in a cosmic war. 
Uh, the hero is held as a semi-prisoner aboard a ship manned solely by women. They're aliens, but uh, for reasons not completely clear, they look very much like human women. These are attractive women with big hair, very big hair. Oh, yeah. This is an amateur effort in the true sense, for the love of it. I only wish Jim Francis had more time to devote to this project. After a stretch of absolutely no progress at all on, the, uh, on finishing it, Francis has resumed production at a rate of about one page a week. So I've been checking in on and off, seeing uh, what the latest is. Uh, I think there's a lot more to go in the story. Uh, the quality is consistently high, and as a bonus, his website has a brief tutorial on computer art. Come on, publishers. Somebody's got to give this guy a contract. Now, I'm not going to be spending much time today or in future months talking about the stuff that everybody knows about. I'm not really going to talk about Art Spiegelman's Mouse, for example, but of course, if you haven't read it, absolutely, you got to read it, okay? Enough said. Talking about Watchmen also would be the height of silliness. Nevertheless, I doubt I'll talk about that either. Uh, likewise, I'm going to assume that you need no information about Tintin, the intrepid reporter from Belgium who solves crimes and discovers lost worlds as he does. Suffice it to say that Tintin author Hergé was a force of nature in European comics, very influential all around the world, really. Tintin is especially impressive for the smart cinematic sensibility with which it is drawn. There it's um, something a pioneer. I bet uh, filmmakers learned a few things from Tintin. If you don't know what bashi bazook means, then definitely go pick out a Tintin adventure at random and start reading it. They're all excellent. However, today I'm going to divert your attention away from Tintin and toward a collaborator of Hergé named Edgar P. Jacobs, who wrote a rival series of crime fighters called Blake and Mortimer. The best-known story from the series is called The Yellow M. Yellow M, people. Like Tintin, it is bursting with action. It belongs fully in the sci-fi genre, with a mad scientist doing some very weird science. The goofy headgear that the scientist wears and uses to hypnotize his victims is absolutely priceless. That has to be seen to be believed. The charm of the Yellow M is undeniable, but part of its interest comes from its admitted primitive style. It serves as a very useful point of comparison, showing what a complete master Hergé was by comparison. The problem with the Yellow M is simply that it's over-narrated. Every single stinking panel gets some narration. Uh, for example, one panel shows a car crashing into a post. And sure enough, that panel has a little piece of narration that informs you that, yes, the car crashed into the post. Scott McCloud, if he saw this kind of clumsy clutter, would probably drop dead and then promptly roll over in his grave. Don't get me wrong, I still like and recommend The Yellow M. You should definitely check it out. I adore the cover art. A great big yellow M is splashed in yellow paint 
on a brick wall, and in front of that wall stands Blake and Mortimer. They're standing with their legs splayed apart, and their legs are overlapping, so the four legs mirror the four strokes of the yellow N um, high above them. It's a really nifty, um, nice, subtle bit of graphic design right there. Uh, You really should check out the cover, if nothing else. Um, As a reviewer of graphic novels for the Starship Sofa, I feel it is my duty to to overcome my indifference to superhero comics so that I can be a better reviewer. Uh, One series from this genre I'm really excited about is Planetary. However, I haven't finished reading it, so I'll save my review of Planetary for later. Although I have to say, it's looking like it's really, really cool. Uh, But meanwhile, I'm going to talk about something from the Superman series. Uh, This is called Superman Red Sun. Maybe I like the story for its loopy and thankfully non-preachy politics. Maybe it was because it subverts the narrative of the smug, too-super-Superman, which uh, just doesn't appeal to me normally. Red Sun imagines Superman's life and how it would have turned out if the timing of his arrival in in a space pod were off by a few hours, causing him to land on a farm, not in Kansas, but in Ukraine. And what would happen if he had grown up as the loyal son of the Bolshevik Revolution? Well, it turns out that Stalin uh, grooms the youth as his successor, Uh, Of course, although Superman is uninterested in politics, insisting that he is simply a working man. Benevolent despotism is Superman's destiny, however, and the Soviet Empire grows wealthy under his rule, embracing the whole world, except for one stubborn backwater called the United States of America. But this new world order is upset when Lex Luthor, that brilliant narcissist, is elected president of of the USA, Meanwhile, dissent is growing in Superman's suffocatingly perfect society, uh, led by a Batman-like hero in a furry Russian hat. And you're going to love the hat, people. The hat is so cool. Mark Millar and Dave Johnson are experts in superhero comics, and this story they've created is more fun than a barrel of vodka. Next month, I hope to have more to say about more recent releases in graphic novels as I turn myself more of an expert in fact and not just in name. Until then, cheers. Hey, you cool <laughs> Fantastic. You know what I mean? Fred, thank you so much. So, we have an interview with... Jason Sanford. Very nice to have you on board, sir. Hey, glad to be here. Oh, Jason. Now, we've got one of your stories coming up in today's show. The ships like clouds risen by their rain. Just, without giving the end in the way, because I would hate that, just tell us a little bit then about that story and where it came from, where it was published and everything like that. Oh, the story came out about, ah, probably about two years ago in uh, Interzone. Uh, it was my first story that was published in Interzone, and uh, they it ended up being reprinted in uh, Year's Best Science Fiction 14, uh, put out by David Hartwell. 
And uh, it's gotten an amazing response there. Uh, story, without giving anything away, story is about a, a, a world in the far future where you have a weather forecaster who um, forecasts the coming weather events, except on this world, all the rain, uh, the storms, everything are brought by uh, spaceships. Millions of spaceships are continually pass, passing over the world, uh, much like clouds do on our planet. So uh, obviously there's a lot more going on than just uh, than it appears, although a lot is going on as it appears. So uh, I, it's, a, it's one of my favorite stories I've written, and it's had an amazing response from uh, readers. How long, Jason, have you been writing for? Because like say, I've known your kind of name kicking around since, I guess, really Starship Sofa, you know, to, like you say, 2007. But have you been batting against your head against the wall writing for like 10, 15 years or something? I've been writing uh, most of my life, but I've been really writing heavy for the last uh, 10 years or so. Um, I also I, I've written other uh, non-science fiction stories, um, um, some fantasy. Um, also have written uh, I'm from the American sa- the Southeast and uh, from near Al- in Alabama. So I've written some fiction that's set down there. Um, actually, I'm working on a novel right now that's set along the Gulf Coast. So. Yeah, but about 10 years I've been uh, kind of beating my head against it and uh, really but it started to click a couple of years ago and uh, had great things happening since. So are you writing just you don't have to answer this or not. Are you writing the novel with a like a publisher? You've got a publisher or are you just writing it for your, your own and hopefully someone will pick it up once it's complete? Well, yeah, I don't ha- I I'm writing it without the publisher yet. Um and unfortunately, you know, you know, I'm still a emerging writer so to speak. Uh so I don't have a publisher lined up for the book. Uh kind of if you if you for your first novel, they want to see the whole thing. You know, they're like, "Hey, you know, you got to kind of lay it out for us." So, I'm I'm <laughs> going to lay it out there. Um they want to see that you can actually finish the thing and that it works. So, that's that's what I'm working on. And but I've I- actually I was going to say, how's it going compared to stories? Because it's obviously a, a total different, or is it just you know a, a short story rule longer? No, it is different. Um, I mean, I personally, my favorite storytelling form is the short story. Um, it's you know, it's 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 so compact. Um, there's no wasted storytelling efforts either. You know, if you if you're you either hit it or you don't uh, with a short story. You know, with a novel. Hey, you know, you, hey, oh, this isn't working. Well, I can keep rolling with it and get back into the story. You know, so, you know, you, we've all read novels where, you know, it's got a lot of filler and a lot of fluff and, you know, you had to kind of stretch it out to make it reach that length. Um, but you can't do that with a short story. Um, yeah. So with the novel, I mean, you've got a lot more room, but, you know, in some ways, you know, it's that having a lot more room lets you um, sometimes not focus as strongly on the story as you should. And I'm not trying to say I'm not doing that, but I do love the short story form. It is it is almost the purest uh, story form we have in our our society, I think. Does does the day job get in the way? Because I know, you know, you've, you just said before that you've, you've got the day, day job really to kind of support the family and everything. Is it hard to kind of mix the two? Would you like just purely just to sit in a room at nine o'clock, eight o'clock in the morning and just write? Or are you a one that can kind of start writing through the night? Well, you know, some I, I, I don't I can't tell you what that's like yet. You know, I would I think I'd, I would enjoy that, but I can't tell you that it'd, it'd be more productive. I've heard some from other writers that some of them, Hey, you know, it's great when you just focus on your writing all day. And I've heard from some people that it's not, um, I do know I enjoy my day job. Um, and you know, obviously you want to support the family and all that, but 
I wonder if, you know, if I focus just totally on my writing, if I would be as productive. Um, right now, it's like, you know, after work, when the kids are down, I'm like, OK, I've got, I got to sit down and do some writing. And I and I focus like a laser on on the stories. Um, hey, if I had all day to do that, would it I don't know, would I be more productive? I really couldn't tell you. Um, I do know um, there have been times in my life where I've had a lot more t- opportunity to write and I didn't. Uh, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer, um, I lived in a, a village in Thailand, which did not have, you know, Internet access. I didn't have a TV. I didn't have anything. Only thing I had was a little shortwave radio where I could listen to the BBC. And um, I should have gotten a lot more writing done. You would think, well, I didn't. I got about the same amount of writing done then <laughs> as I do now. So I really maybe, it's, you know, maybe this is the way it's supposed to be for me. What is the just what is the dear job for you? I, I do. I, I work in communications. Uh, I, I design brochures. I, I, uh, I work, uh, build websites and stuff like that. So also you have a story in Starship Sova's Volume 2, you know, so Into the Depths of Illuminated Seas. Now, again, don't give anything away because we, we've, I've got this actually one lined up eventually to, to get narrated, but first off, it's going to be hit in in the in the uh, the volume tell us a little bit about this one where it came from again and you know what's the difference from this one to see other other short stories well yeah this is actually uh this is a fantasy story um which you know i, I i'm trying to think of all the stories i've published uh, recently i think probably nine ninety percent of them are science fiction so uh this is one of my uh one of the rare uh fantasy stories the Without giving anything away, the story uh, deals with uh, uh, a 19th century village where a young woman has unfortunately been cursed with a rather uh, uh, bad misfortune of predicting the deaths of uh, all the sailors in the the village. Uh, The names of all those who are going to die appear on her skin. I'm not giving anything away there because you learn that in the first couple of paragraphs. Um, So the names of all the sailors who are, are fated to die at sea. They just flow across her skin. And it came to me, you know, because in some ways in society, even though people don't realize it, um, we're all dealing with the deaths of everyone who's come before us and everyone who's going going to die. I mean, death is the one constant of our life. Um, It will happen to everyone, you know. And don't give me none of that bogus about, hey, we're going to achieve immortality one day. It won't happen. You People will still die. I don't care if you live to 2,000 years old. You will still die. Um, it's, it's the nature of the universe. Everything must die. So what happens to uh, someone who, who sees this coming? And how do people treat her? And how do you deal with that? And, I, again, it's uh, I loved writing this story. Um and I think it's uh, you know it it was a bit of a departure for me, but I, it, it was a fun one. Was it was it difficult to swap into the fan, put your fantasy hat on for a time being, or did the, did they just really merge into one? And in the end, it's just a short story. Well, yeah, in in some ways, it's just a short story. Um, you know, um, one reason I write uh, science fiction is I do like the explanation tied in with the story. You know, how does this happen? Why does it happen? And and with fantasy, um, the, those explanations are a little uh, looser than they are in science fiction. Doesn't mean they're any less valid. It's just a different type of explanation. But you still have the same, you know, the same type of writing that must go on. You must set up the world. You must set up, make it credible, and all that kind of stuff. And I and I, I love it. It, it. Like I said, it's just it's fun to write short stories, and I had a great deal of fun writing this one. 
Now, this year as well, you got nominated for a Nebula Award. Did What was that like? And did it just kind of think, right, another focus, you know, this is fantastic. You know, I'm, I'm hitting the kind of big time now. Or are you kind of keeping yourself mellow and just trying to plow on with the novel? Oh, I'm staying the mellow. I'm staying the mellow. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was totally thrilled about it. Um, you know, I had no clue that this was going to happen. It suddenly is like, um, wow, people are responding. It was for the nomination was for my uh, Neb- uh, novella, uh, Sublimation Angels, which was published in uh, Interzone last year. And suddenly I started hearing, I'm like, wow, people are nominating it because the process goes through where, you know, basically people who are members of the uh, Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America, um, they they nominate the stories. And if you get so many nominations, you become finalists. And so I started hearing like, wow, people are nominating it. What what the where'd that come from? You know, and uh, then it made the finalists and I was thrilled. Um, you know, I didn't have any illusions that I was going to win. I was up against some amazing uh, writers and the, the writer who ended up winning in that uh, category, Cage Baker, um, totally deserved the honor. And uh, so. But, yeah, it was just, you know, I know it sounds like a cliche to say, hey, it was a thrill to be nominated. Well, you know, it was. Oh, because, uh, it is, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's just yeah, like- well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, all my life, uh, when I was a kid, um, I, I grew up in Alabama. Um, my grandfather was a massive science fiction and fantasy fan. So that's where my love of science fiction comes from. And he had in his house, he had a like he built his own library you know, put in the wooden shelves, built them himself. And they were just lined with classic paperbacks and uh, magazines from the 40s, 50s and 60s and into the 70s. And, you know, just that captured my imagination imagination as a young child. And I remember all these Nebula Award uh, anthologies from his library. And I remember, you know, looking at the books going, oh, this is a Nebula Award winner or nominee. And so then to suddenly be nominated, I mean, it was just thrilling. I wish, you know, I really wish my grandfather had been around to see that. I know he would have been uh, just too too happy about it. Are we going to see any more short stories in the near future, Jason? Or have you kind of put that on hold while this, you, you thrash out this novel? No, actually, I've been working on uh, a number of short stories. And that's my problem. With, <laughs> that's probably one reason why they won't uh, for uh, new publishers. Uh, I mean, new authors, they want to see uh, see the novel first is I'll be going with the with the novel and then I'll be like, oh, this is a great idea for a short story. I got to work on it. <laughs> so I um, I have a story, one story forthcoming in Inner Zone. I won't be in the next issue, uh, which comes out in a couple two weeks, I think. But I think it'll probably it had they told me it might be out by the end of the year. And if not, it'll be out early next year. It's called uh, Millicent Cobb plays in real time. This story um, is science fiction, but it's a bit of a departure uh, from what I've been writing recently. One, I, I think it's going. It deals with uh, economics, if you want to, but not in a boring way. But uh, economics as they impact all of our lives, but also about a, a new monetary system that you know was created to try to free people from the shackles of what cash does to our society, only to find out that you know what. <laughs> Doesn't matter if you use gold, doesn't matter if you use jewels, doesn't matter if you use money, you know, and in the end, you still get all this crap coming down upon you from this type um, from economic systems. Um, I have another story that's uh, been accepted by Orson Scott Card's Intergalactic uh, Medicine Show, which is the uh, Never Never Wizard of Apalachicola. Uh, That is a mixture of fantasy and science fiction. Um, 
has an astronaut in it, has a wizard in it, and uh, let's just say they, you know, that they have fun going at each other. But it's uh, it's a it's kind of a uh, it's a probably the most southern story I've written in a long time. Um, it's kind of in the vein of southern literature here in the United States. Um, but I'm l- looking forward to that one too. Then I have a number of other stories I'm working on, but. I never talk about them till they're done because if I do, I may not finish them. Uh, most writers are like that, but you're a temperamental lot, you writers. It's nice, I tell you what, it is nice though, mind you. He kind of works in Interzone because I think out of you know, the, the big ones there, Interzone is the one that seems to have its head screwed on with, you know, like this kind of this new media technology, you know, and just the way their magazine looks. Do you know what I mean? It's like the artwork and the images and the way it's laid out. Interzone is probably the one out of you know fantasy and science fiction and analog as well, where it's at least keeping up with the you know keeping up with the, today's appearances. Oh, definitely. In fact, uh, I mean, Interzone is publishing uh, some of the most exciting writers in science fiction and fantasy these days. I mean, you know, maybe it's a little you know conceited for me to say that since they're publishing me so much, but. I was reading – the truth is I was reading Interzone and loving Interzone before I was published in it. Um, you know, I think uh, Andy Cox and the other editors have done an amazing job since since they took over Interzone, you know, what, three or four years ago. Um, they've – it's it's a, the magazine, while it has a long distinguished history, is feels totally new and exciting. Um, and the writers you're publishing in it are writers who are, you know – so you are seeing some of their works in the other magazines, but the stories they are publishing in Interzone are right now, I think, are truly groundbreaking. Um, in, in fact, I, I think it's funny because I think Interzone right now feels very almost like a print version of some of the better, best um, online magazines like Clark's World, um, Strange Horizons, you've got um, and Fantasy Magazine. You've got you've got several um, online magazines like those who are really pushing the boundaries of what science fiction and fantasy can do. And Interzone is right alongside them doing that pushing. Now, that doesn't mean you're not seeing great stories in fantasy and science fiction, Asimov's Intergalactic Medicine Show. But, you know, there's a different focus, and I'm loving it. You know, so I I always tell people, you know, you need to subscribe to Interzone if you want to see what's going on in the genre these days. Jason, it's been fantastic having you on. Hopefully we can get you on and I'll chat more because I would just love to sit and chat with you all day. I know you've got work, unfortunately, now. Would you do me a kind thing, Jason, and introduce your story, the ship story for Starship Sofa? I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to. Um, the ship's like clouds risen by their rain. Uh, as I said before, is it's set in a far future. Um, we have You have a, an older weather forecaster who has suffered a, um, a horrible loss in her life, but her dedication to protecting the other people in her village and her town um, drives her on. But now she has uh, someone new in her life who is wanting to push to understand what is going on in their world. And, and you know, the, what they discover is going to be a uh, truly mind blowing. I hope you enjoy the story. Jason, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me on, and thanks for uh, running the story. Talk to you later. Now, before I forget, I'll have to actually tell you the winners of last month's competition before we get into this month's competition. Yes, ever the professional. We have, or it was for then and now, Philip Jose Farmer went up against Fabio Fernandez. The results are Fabio Fernandez, 49.3%. Philip Jose Farmer, 
50.7%. It was so close, Fabio. You would not believe. So close. You've lost out to a great writer, but do you know what I mean? That was a very close story, so there you go. Don't forget, if you want to vote for this month's Then and Now, come over to the front of the website. There'll be the little click-on-vote little widget there. Please cast your vote. We need the votes to make the game work. There you go. So this is the first story in the Then and Now competition. It is Jason Sanford's The Ships Like Clouds Risen by the Rain. It is narrated by... Lizanne Hurd. Lizanne Hurd has done work for June Steef, as well as having her art and stories published in various online zines and podcasts. Check out her site at The Big Purple Couch. And a big thanks to Richard Field from June Steef Audio Production Magazine. Honestly, go over to June Steef. You know, them guys put out some amazing short story work. It is just my hats off to them. These guys are talented. So please, I'll put a link on the June Steve as well. Say hello. Say Starship Sofa sent you over because there's amazing work going out there as well. So, Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. The Ships Like Clouds Risen by Their Rain by Jason Sanford. Read by Lizanne Hurd. Mare's tails blew in from the west, clear sign that a big storm was heading our way. As I watched the hundreds of small, wispy ships float silently by on the breeze, I was tempted to keep quiet. After all, I'd warned for years about our town becoming overbuilt, making all of us vulnerable to the flash floods created by big storms. But with memories of the last flood fading, people had ignored me. The mayor even called me a nervous old woman, afraid of my own shadow. It would be just desserts for everyone to be washed away when the big ship's rains hit. But wishing for revenge is one thing. Actually having people hurt over it? Quite another. I grabbed my wooden mallet and rang the alarm bell long and hard, taking pride in a moment when my sworn duty actually mattered. By the time I climbed down from the water tower... The mayor was waiting impatiently for me. What is it this time, Tim? He asked. Water or shit? I smiled in irritation. Despite my continual corrections, the ships dropped a highly refined organic matter, not excrement. Too many townsfolk called it just that. While they knew how vital the ships were to our world, that didn't stop their agitation when salvation splattered across their houses and streets. Water, I said. But it'll be a big blow based on the number of mare's tails running from the ship. Maybe as big as the storm fifty years ago. I winced at the memory. My little sister had been killed by those floods, sucked into a vortex which opened right in front of our house. The mayor glared angrily at the sky. You're sure this isn't another wrong prediction? I restrained the urge to throttle this loathsome, worthless man. I've done my duty and warned the town. It's now up to you, the mayor cussed, not believing me, but also afraid of what the townsfolk would do if he ignored a valid warning. People aren't going to like this. The harvest festival started this morning. All the vegetables and fruits are out in the open. I glanced at the horizon. Already a dark shape, bigger than anything I'd ever seen, grew from the world's curve. They don't have to like it, I said. Tell them we have an hour, at most. The mayor nodded and ran toward the festival, yelling at people to save what they could. 
Other townsfolk ran to their homes, telling their kids to climb into the highest rooms. Everywhere I looked, people were wide-eyed and scared, rushing about as if the world were about to end. And perhaps it was. After all, a ship of heaven was about to unleash its floods upon our thrown-together land. Imagine a mud ball packed tight by little kid hands. The hands continually pack mud onto the ball, but the ball never grows larger. Just endless mud, packing round and round until you wonder where it all goes. That's our world. From the weather histories, I know worlds aren't supposed to be like this. Worlds have solid crusts of metal and rock and molten cores of fire and heat. Worlds also recycle. They create and destroy, grow and decay. The water you drink was excreted by a woman a thousand years before. Her body is the dust from which your food grows. Her bones are the clay on which you build your home. Not our world. Like new mud pushing down the old, everything sinks to the middle of our world. There are no rivers, no oceans, nothing but land continually created from our rain of organics and other materials. Our skies are always hazy. Up high, one sees a dappled silver sheen from the small mackerel ships passing at high altitude. Down low, the speckled dots and bulges of larger ships float by, bringing the biggest extremes of weather. All the ships contribute something to our world: oxygen and carbon dioxide, metal, hail, and organic particles. Water is rain, vapor, or ice. Every day, our skies are filled with a thousand ships, each one giving something before leaving again for the greater universe. The first thing we do upon waking is to sweep our houses of the dust which fell overnight. Eventually, though, as the land builds up around us, sweeping isn't enough. So we build our homes higher and higher, walls ten meters above the walls your grandparents built, a floor which used to be the roof of your ancestors slept under. Up and up, we're always moving up, but we never go any higher. By the time we've salvaged what we could of the harvest festival's food. The ship was almost upon us. The ship was a cumulus, towering four kilometers high and stretching across the visible world. From the number of mares' tails I'd seen earlier, I'd figured a cumulus would be chasing them, but I'd never seen one this big. It moved slowly through the atmosphere, the massive curve and sweep of its bow funneling the air into cloudy turbulence. Dark rains poured from the ship's belly, turning the horizon black except for the occasional burst of lightning. When I reached home, my apprentice Cress was already at work, carrying books and weather logs to the top floor. I was glad she'd heard the bell. This morning, Cress had headed to the ravines south of town to check on the erosion gauges. Passing rains continually wore new gullies and ravines in our world's loose soil. Unfortunately, loose soils also made being caught in the open during a big storm extremely dangerous. Flash floods would literally wash everything away. Master Tem, Cress said when she saw me, "I've discovered a new phenomenon. Come and see." Cress sounded excited by the coming storm, as I'd guessed I'd have been when I was fourteen. I tossed the food I'd lugged home in our kitchen, then followed her up the weather tower. The tower, the tallest structure in town, swayed ominously to the wind. I glanced around the town and saw that almost everyone had finished closing up their homes. The only person still out was Les, the tailor. Who hastily hammered a support beam against one wall of his house? 
For the last two years, I'd been after Les to fix his house, telling him it would never survive a big storm. I shook my head and looked toward the oncoming ship. What do you see? I yelled at Cress over the building wind. The cumulus dropped some kind of lighted sphere. Most likely lightning. You aren't old enough to remember, but big ships generate massive charge differentials between themselves and the ground. Cress rolled her eyes. I've read about lightning in the histories, she shouted back. This was different. Pay attention and see. I resisted the urge to slap her for being cheeky with her master. She acted like I had at that age, totally absorbed in dreams about ships, distant planets, and dimensions beyond belief. Her parents had apprenticed Crest to me because they knew her imagination marked her as someone with the potential for being taken by a passing ship. But I wasn't sure that what saved me, the burden of weather predicting I'd taken on after my sister's death, would also work for her. I looked back at the cumulus, wondering about both the ship and the people inside. Why did cumulus ships always pursue the much smaller mare's tails? Why did the people inside occasionally pound us with dangerous storms? The histories described the weather patterns on old Earth, the clouds and rains which recycled the world's water, and how early humans believed gods and demons created their planet's storms. Despite my years of study, it pained me to admit that I was little better than those ancient humans. The ships might as well be gods or demons for all I knew about them. My thoughts were interrupted as a single ball of light fell from the ship. It hurled through the dark skies and exploded into the ground two kilometers from us, sending up a mushroom explosion of dirt. I grabbed the telescope and tried to make out what the light was, but the rain already splattered around us and the wind swayed the tower too much to focus on the impact site. We have to get below, I yelled. The tower isn't safe in a storm this big. Cress, though, ignored me as she plotted the impact through the rangefinder. She wrote something down on the rain-splattered weather log and shoved the paper under my nose. That's the third impact I've seen, she said. They're all in a straight line. Before I could ask where the line was leading, another ball of light shot from the ship and hit just outside town. The impacts were walking themselves right toward us. Not needing to see more... I rang the warning bell again, for all the good it would do, then grabbed Cress and pulled her down the ladder. We bolted into the house's safe room, but when I tried to shut the door, the wind blew so strong the locking bar wouldn't catch. I yelled for Cress to get under a desk as I tried to force the door shut. The last thing I remembered was a loud whining followed by an explosion of dirt and rain, which threw me into blackness. I woke to dried blood caking my face and dried mud stiff on my clothes. I lay on my cot in my bedroom, the sun shining through shattered windows. As I sat up, I saw my room was a shambles. Even though this was the second story, the floodwaters had reached this high. Water and muck coated the floor. As I stood up, I plucked several of my sketches from the mud. One, a detailed look at the high-altitude mackerel ships, which were hard to see even with the best telescopes, had been a particular favorite of mine. I dropped it back in the mud and walked outside. In my sixty years of life, I had never seen the town so hard hit. Of the five hundred homes and buildings in town, at least a hundred were damaged. In addition, there were gaps along the streets where houses had once stood. I wasn't surprised to see that Lester Taylor's house was gone. 
His house had needed repairs for so long that everyone knew it wouldn't stand up to a strong blow. I muttered a silent prayer that he'd died quickly and wasn't lying entombed in some run-off tunnel dozens of meters beneath our feet. What shocked me most, though, was the number of strong homes that had also disappeared. During big storms, floodwaters usually raced straight through our town before washing into the drainage tunnels, which continually opened and closed in the loose soil. This time, the ripples left in the mud suggested the waters had swirled about in unusual circular patterns. I discovered why when we walked two blocks south of my house. A number of buildings there were gone, replaced by a large sinkhole fifty meters across. Cress and the mayor stood next to the hole with a group of townsfolk. I walked over to join them. The mayor was thrilled to see me. Glad to see you up and about, he said, hugging me in an embrace I grimaced through. I was worried our hero wouldn't get to tell me what the hell happened here. I nodded, embarrassed at the mayor's calling me a hero. Several other townsfolk also thanked me, grateful for the warning I'd been able to give. Once Cress had a moment, she filled me in. The explosion that knocked me unconscious came from one of the balls of light, which crashed into town and created the hole before us. Cress assumed the hole had breached some cavern or tunnel under the town, because the floodwaters had swirled down the hole as if into a drain. The waters also carried about forty houses away, along with over a hundred people. But as the mayor kept telling me, it would have been far worse without my warning. What do you think's down there? Cress asked, trying to get close to the crumbling edge without falling in. Already the hole was collapsing. Within a few days, nothing would be left in the loose soil but a large depression. We'll never know because it's forbidden, I said, eyeing the mayor. Who nodded in agreement as I reminded Cress of the only absolute law on our world? Any time people try to dig underground or explore sinkholes like this, ships come and kill them. Come, we need to salvage what we can from our house. Cress didn't seem convinced by my words, but she followed me back home without argument as she stared with longing at the ships passing in the sky. The next two months were tough, but the town pulled through. Most of the crops stored at the harvest festival had been destroyed, along with many of the chickens and pigs, and none of us had much food to fill our bellies. But crops grew fast here. They had to. Anything which grew too slowly would be buried by the continual rain of organics and other materials. Soon the wheat and rice were ready to harvest. The vegetables were ripe. The fruits were only weeks from being picked. As I'd predicted, the sinkhole quickly collapsed under the weight of the loose soil. Several townsfolk petitioned the mayor to allow new houses to be built near there, or at least a memorial park. However, I advised against both options. The ground could still collapse if another storm blew through. Because of my hero status, the mayor actually agreed with me. In more mundane matters, Cress couldn't keep her head out of the sky. While this was usually a good trait in a weatherman, she blew off all her studies, only doing just enough work to keep me from yelling at her. So it was that one fine hazy day, I found her daydreaming in the weather tower instead of recording the passing ships in the log. When she saw me, she jumped off her stool, knocking the log from the railing. I barely caught the book before it fell six stories to the ground below. Master Tim, I am so sorry, she began to stammer. I waved for her to be quiet. What deep thoughts are you pondering? I asked. Cress looked at me like this was a trick question. And she'd been smacked for a wrong answer.
The ships, she said with hesitation. I nodded. When I was your age, I spent all my free time watching ships passing in the sky and praying that I was special enough to attract their attention. I didn't care what ship it was. Massive universe jumper, slim star hopper, dimension slider. I wanted to leave this mud ball of a world and see the universe. From the way Crest nodded, I knew I spoke for her own feelings. There's nothing for us here, she said. I mean, humans are exploring the universe, all the universes, and we're stuck in a pre-industrial cesspool. It's not right. I sighed because Cress was saying the very things I'd said at her age. Above us, a large ship of a style I'd never seen before puffed lazily across the sky while a gentle drizzle of rain fell from its body. I knew that Cress wouldn't be staying here much longer. She had so much potential— all that saved me was my sister's death. I'd been so determined that no one else died like my sister that the ships avoided me. Cress, though, wasn't determined to stay. Eventually, one of the countless ships passing by would descend and take her, leaving our world for sights I couldn't begin to conceive. Still, I owed it to Cress's parents to at least try and keep her here. "'Give me a month,' I said. "'There are things I want to teach you about our world.' If after that you still want to leave, I'll give you my blessing. Cress hugged me and muttered her thanks, no doubt knowing, just as I knew, that nothing I could teach her would keep her here. Over the next few weeks, Cress and I traveled by horse around the countryside, visiting several towns with decent libraries. I showed her numerous histories of our world, including restricted volumes speculating on how our world stayed the same size, despite the constant mass being added, and why everything continually sank toward the world's core. I also showed her 10,000 years' history's worth of observations about the ships, which continually visited our planet and kept us alive with their offerings. In one library, I pulled out a worn leather tome detailing three ship crashes over the last few millennia. In each case, our people had rescued humans from the downed ships. While strange differences had been noted, alterations to the head, bizarre tints and glows around their bodies, they had been able to speak with us. One account even briefly described the interior of a ship, which had been merely empty space. That account also swore that the crash's two survivors had somehow formed out of the ship's very skin. Unfortunately, all of these accounts were frustratingly vague and sparse. In each case, rescuing ships had quickly arrived and taken away the survivors. See, Cress said as we rode back to our town, they're keeping us in the dark. Anyone who knows anything is removed from our world. Only one way to find out, I said, nodding at several large hoppers passing above us, dropping large, wet drops of fermented materials from their bellies. Unfortunately, once you go that route, you can never come back. As we rode our horse over the speckled green and brown hills and through the thin, straggly forests, I tried to explain to Cress that we had a duty to each other. No matter how much technology the rest of humanity possessed, we were all human. Unless one worked for each other, there was nothing worth living for, just as the trees and grass around us only survived by growing to the sky faster than they were buried, so too did we survive because we helped each other. However, my heart wasn't in my words. I thought of my little sister, Lien, 
who died when she was six. We'd played endless ship games, imagining the worlds we'd visit, searching the sky for the ship we'd eventually travel on. Our mom should have punished us for saying such things, but she'd merely nodded and pointed out her own favorite ships when they'd passed by. But Leanne died before she could find her ship. We'd been walking home from the park, where we'd spent the morning throwing folded paper ships into the wind, when a massive cumulus passed over the town, sending floods raging through the streets. As the waters tore at our bodies, I'd grabbed Leanne's hands and struggled to hold her above the current. She'd screamed and cried, begging me to hold on, but the floods snatched her away. My mother had held me all that night, telling me I'd done the best I could and that Leanne would still find her ship. But I no longer cared about the ships. If the people who flew the damn things could so easily kill my little sister, I'd never join them. As if knowing my desire, the ships left me alone. The next morning, Cress was gone. At first, I assumed she'd gone to market or to check our instruments. But when she missed dinner, then supper, my gut climbed to my throat. I stopped by her parents' house and discreetly inquired about her, but they hadn't seen her. She also hadn't spoken to them in days. But if she was going to try and attract a ship, I strongly doubted she'd tell her parents. When Crest didn't return that night, I knew she was gone. I prayed she'd found a good ship and was enjoying her life. The next morning, I was cooking breakfast when I realized the jar of strawberry preserves was empty. I walked into the root cellar to get a new jar, only to be confronted by loud curses. In the cellar's far corner, I found a large hole in the wooden floor. About time you heard me, Cress said from the hole. I've been yelling since yesterday. I quickly lowered a rope, and Cress climbed out. She then explained that she'd gone into the root cellar for supplies and fell through the floor. Evidently, the storm several months ago had washed away a lot of the ground under the house. I was extremely irritated, imagining the house I'd built upon my mother's house and her mother's house before that, in danger of collapse. Crest, though, was ecstatic. "You don't understand," she said. "The water didn't just wash the ground away; it exposed a number of underground tunnels, and there's a faint glow coming from somewhere down there." I started to remind Crest that it was forbidden to explore underground, and if the ships didn't kill us. The mayor definitely would. Tunnels on our loose soil world were also dangerous because of the potential for the loose soil to collapse. But as I stared into Cress's excited eyes, I realized that if I said no to exploring beneath the house, she would probably give up any remaining desire to stay on our world. Once that happened, she would be gone on the first interested ship. I sighed and grabbed a jar of strawberry preserves. If I was going to risk my neck. It would at least be on a full stomach. The red glow Cress had seen came from a ship, gleaming like new and wedged into the old foundations of my house, thirty meters below the ground. The ship appeared to be a dimension slider, although that was merely a name from a book and didn't tell much about what it could actually do. To get to the ship, Cress and I climbed and dug through the ruins of my ancestors' houses, ancient rooms half filled with dirt, walls ruptured and split by pressure and water. Even though it was nerve-wracking seeing how much of my house's foundation had washed away in the recent flood, it was also fascinating to climb through my family's history. 
my grandmother had often talked about the bright red kitchen of her childhood, and, sure enough, the walls of that room two levels down still showed a faint red ochre beneath the dirt and grime. Four levels down, I ran my fingers along a cracked ceramic oven and wondered about the meals my ancestors had cooked here. But the ship was the centerpiece of the ruins, a perfect sphere, ten meters across, with the lowest timbers of my house merging into the ship's skin, as if they'd always been one. How old is this ship? Cress asked. I calculated how many levels of the house reached down to this point. Maybe three hundred years, give or take a generation or two. Cress shook her head. That can't be right. The history of the town goes back a thousand years. There's no record of a ship crashing here. That was indeed a puzzle. Over the next week, we cleared away more dirt and debris around the ship. To make our work easier, I built a simple pulley system to lower ourselves into the hole. We also took care to only work on days when the passing ships indicated good weather, and only after locking the front door against visitors. After all, if the mayor or town constables discovered that we were exploring an underground ship, not even my hero status would save us from a quick drop and sudden stop. One strange thing we discovered was that the waters which had surged through my house's foundation appeared to have drained into the ship with the runoff tunnels. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/achieve today. Radiating out from the ship like spokes on a wheel, Cress and I debated whether the ship had somehow called the water to itself. When Cress and I weren't clearing around the ship, we attended to our regular duties. We also explored my volumes of weather history. The histories are wrong, Cress said one morning as I climbed up the weather tower to check on her. In her lap sat my oldest volume of histories, dating back a millennium to the town's first weatherman. This volume says your family has been building up this house for nine hundred years, but there's no way the ship has been around that long. I sighed, knowing that Cress was right, but also not having an answer. As we'd cleared away the dirt from the ship, 
we hadn't found any evidence of older houses under it. The ship appeared to support my entire house. Maybe my ancestors' houses disappeared into the ship like the water did. Crest considered this for a moment, then discounted it with a snort. That would mean that a ship supported every house in town. I find that hard to believe. While I was glad that Cress had given up thoughts of leaving our world, even if the reason she wanted to stay was putting us at risk of death, I refused to let her disrespect me. I closed the history book and told her to keep an eye out for bad weather. The next day, the weather changed, and, much to Cress's irritation, we had no time for the ship. Mare's tails began to blow in from the west, always followed by the cumulus ships which endlessly chased them. While none of these ships were anywhere near as large as the cumulus which damaged our town earlier in the year, they were still big enough to issue warnings. Because of the danger to the town, either Cress or myself stayed in the tower at all times. While Cress hated to be torn from her examinations of the ship, she was frustrated that we still hadn't found a way inside. She understood our duty. In addition, the runoff from the storms now ran through the underground tunnels beneath my house. Being caught down there during a downpour would mean certain death. A few days into the storm cycle, I woke around midnight to wind and rain howling outside my window. I grabbed my robe and ran to the top floor, irritated that I'd slept through the warning bell. I could just make out the glow of a large cumulus above town as it pelted us with rain. This was the biggest storm to hit town since the blow months ago. I opened the roof hatch and tried to climb to the tower, but the wind was too strong. I yelled for Crest to stay where she was, then closed the hatch and waited out the storm. The cumulus passed in ten minutes. I opened the front door to survey the damage and was almost run over by the mayor. What happened to the warning? He yelled. I was walking back from the pub and nearly got washed away. I glanced up at the weather tower, which I could now see was empty. I frowned. The storm wasn't that bad, I said. Stop complaining. Before the mayor could protest, I slammed the door in his face and ran to the basement. Below the hole, I could hear rushing water. Worse, the pulley's ropes descended into the maelstrom. I'd always detach the rope and pulley when we weren't using it, so there'd be no evidence that we were going underground. That meant Crest had gone down there before the storm hit. Unable to do anything until the water drained away, I made a cup of tea and tried to relax, but I couldn't stop thinking of all the potential Cress had. I cried for Cress and for myself, the memory of my sister being washed away, mixing with the certainty that Cress was dead. By morning, the water was gone. I lowered myself on the rope and pulley and lit my light stick. The going was slower than before since the path we'd cleared through the old foundations had been washed away. When I finally reached the bottom level, I found Cress lying beside the ship, which glowed a darker red than I remembered. To my shock, Cress was alive and breathed in labored gasps, which seemed impossible considering how much water had flowed through here. Once again, the wash patterns indicated the water had rushed into the ship. Cress shouldn't have survived. But any thoughts on Cress's miraculous survival vanished when I heard footsteps behind me. I turned, fearing that the mayor or constables had caught us, and stared with shock into the face of my six-year-old sister. Leon looked as she had fifty years ago, when that massive cumulus sent floods raging through the town. As if nothing had changed between us, Leon reached out and held my hand, 
I tried to jerk away, but she held on tight and wouldn't let go. I've missed you, Tim, she said. I nodded, tears falling from my eyes. I wanted to tell Leanne how sorry I was for not holding on to her, but she merely smiled and pulled me over to Cress. She's not ready, Leanne said, leaning over and smoothing Cress's wet hair. Before I could ask what Leanne meant, she stood and walked to the ship. But instead of the ship opening for her, Leanne's body stretched across the ship itself. Blood gushed out and merged with the ship's red glow. Her skin and muscles and bones flattened and bent and became the ship. The last thing to go was her face, which smiled at me and said, I love you, as her mouth turned into an impossibly long line before finally disappearing. Panicked, feeling as if my sister had just died a second time, I grabbed Cress's arms and pulled her as fast as I could back to the tunnel. It took me hours to drag Cress to the top level. I tied the rope around her shoulders and prepared to use the pulley to raise her through the hole. But before I could lift Cress, I heard the roar of water rushing through the drainage tunnels. Images of Leon being yanked from my grasp shot through me as new floodwaters grabbed Cress's unconscious body. I tried to lift Cress, but I couldn't fight the waters and also pull on the rope. Just as my grip began to slip, I suddenly found myself being pulled into the air. Someone also pulled Cress's half of the rope up. I emerged from the hole and collapsed onto the wooden floor of the root cellar, coughing with water and bile. Only when I finally stopped gagging did I look into the angry eyes of the mayor and several burly town constables. The mayor and constables had come to my house when I failed to give a warning about a second storm in a row. I expected them to drag Cress and myself immediately to the town hall, where a drumhead court would sentence us to death for violating our world's only absolute law. Instead, the mayor ordered the constables to carry Cress to her bed. He then summoned a doctor to examine my apprentice. Once we were alone, the mayor demanded to know what Cress and I were doing underground. The water washed away the foundation, and the floor collapsed under Cress, I explained. Grateful that Cress was still unconscious, so she couldn't mess up my lie. I was trying to save her. The mayor wasn't a fool. He'd seen the pulley system in the root cellar and knew this wasn't something I'd thrown together for a quick rescue. However, instead of punishing me, he muttered about all the storms hitting the town in recent days and how frightened the townsfolk were. I suddenly realized at this point he couldn't afford to kill his only weatherman. Instead, he warned me not to miss another storm and left the house with the constables. I walked to Cress's room, where the doctor was still attending to her. Seeing nothing I could do to help, I climbed up the weather tower. The skies appeared settled. The only ships in sight were the high-altitude mackerel ships, which usually indicated decent weather. That was good, because the town was showing the damage from days of endless storms. Silt rose a meter high along some houses and buildings, while other houses listed at awkward angles, testimony to how waterlogged the ground was becoming. I looked down the street toward the park, where Lien and I had played that fateful day so long ago. While I knew this wasn't the same ground we'd walked on then, the soil having risen five meters in the last fifty years, I tried not to cry as I remembered yet again the feeling of Lien being yanked from my grasp. I also wondered if I'd hallucinated Lien's appearance down below, or if the ship had really brought her back. 
Either way, the feeling of her hand in mine refused to leave. By the time I climbed down from the tower, Cress was awake, screaming about ships and the sky and the far side of the universe. The doctor gave her a shot, which relaxed her. Cress stared at me for a moment with a strange smile on her face, then fell asleep. The doctor asked what happened to Cress. I told him the same lie I'd given the mayor, but the doctor didn't buy it. He told me to let him know when she woke, and then he packed his medical bag and left. I climbed back up the weather tower and wasn't surprised to see that instead of walking back to his clinic, the doctor went straight to the mayor's office. I had a bad feeling that the reprieve the mayor had just given Cress and I would only last as long as the town's spell of bad weather. Fortunately for Cress and I, the weather grew increasingly worse over the next three days as increasing numbers of ships passed over our town. Their shadows darkened the sky for hours at a time. Their water flooded our streets. Their organics buried us in a continual orange haze. A few of the ships even passed a dozen meters above my watchtower, so low that I should have seen the people inside. However, through the ship's translucent screens, I only saw emptiness. I wondered if the ships were reacting to Cress and I disturbing the underground ship, a thought I didn't dare speak out loud. However, the mayor obviously believed the bad weather resulted from Cress and I going underground. He stopped by several times a day and grilled me about the weather. He didn't like my evasive answers, but was also unwilling to arrest me. Whenever there was a break in the ships passing overhead, I climbed down from the tower and checked on Cress. She slept most of the time. When she woke, she sometimes screamed and cried about the ship. Other times, she laughed. Nothing I said or did would make her tell me what had happened. After a few minutes awake, she simply fell back asleep. Then came the day two massive ships arrived. The first, a flat ship of a style I'd never seen before, spanned half the horizon. It glowed dark blue and dropped shards of ice and metal across the land, smashing a number of roofs in town. The other large ship was a cumulus, and its storm was as bad as the one which rocked our town a few months back. I banged the warning bell for as long as I dared, then jumped for the safety of my house. Once the flood subsided, I wasn't surprised to find the mayor and two constables at my door. The mayor demanded to inspect the hole in my root cellar. I argued, telling him it was forbidden, but the mayor simply shoved me out of the way. He and his constables waited for the water in the tunnels to subside, then lowered themselves down the hole. The glow from their light sticks faded as they climbed deeper and deeper, heading straight for the ship. I said a prayer for my sister, hoping the mayor wouldn't hurt her if she appeared to him. I also prayed for myself and Cress. I could face execution without fear, but Cress was so young, I didn't know how she'd react. Hours passed as I waited for the mayor to climb back out and arrest me, but he and his men took their time. Finally, as day turned to night, I decided to climb back up the tower. To my surprise, there were so many ships in the sky that their individual glows merged into one rainbowed mass which rippled and swirled like water flowing across the land. I'd never seen anything like this. Unsure what it meant for the weather, I banged the warning bell. Better safe than sorry. Once I climbed down, I checked on Cress. But her bed was empty. I ran outside and didn't see her, then looked all over the house. Then I heard the pulley in the basement squeaking. By the time I reached the hole, 
Chris was gone. I grabbed a light stick and lowered myself down, hoping to stop Cress before the mayor saw her. Underground, though, everything had changed. Where before the first level had been half collapsed and full of sediment, now this old room was as clean and well lit as I remembered from my own childhood. The stove my mother cooked on glowed warmly, and the table where my sister and I had eaten so many meals looked as fresh as yesterday. Leon sat at the table. Happily folding paper ships as if we were both still kids. This time I hugged her. She smiled and asked me if I wanted to make some paper ships with her. But I said I had to find Cress. I know where she is. Leon grabbed my hand and led me to the stairs leading to the next level. Each level of the house was a step back in time. We walked through a red walled room from my grandmother's childhood. On an even deeper level, the cracked ceramic oven I'd previously seen was now clean and hot with bread baking inside. I asked Leanne how this had happened, and she told me the ship remembered the old houses. I wanted you to be happy, she said, so I asked the ship to fix everything up. Eventually, Leanne led me to the lowest foundation, where the ship sat glowing in a dark red haze. Cress stood before the ship as if in a trance. Where are the mayor and the constables? I asked Leon. She pointed to the ship. At first I thought she meant they were inside, but then I looked closer at the red haze lining the ship and saw blood vessels and a heart and skin stretched to the tearing point. I remembered how Leon's body had been torn and flattened, and I screamed at Cress to get away from the ship. But when I tried to grab her, Leon held me back, her grip far stronger than any six year old girl's should be. I watched in horror as Cress reached for the ship, her hand stretching out and out until she touched half the ship with impossibly long fingers. She then turned and smiled at me as the rest of her body was pulled in and distorted beyond recognition. I turned and tried to flee, but Leon kept a firm grip on my hand. It'll be okay, she said. You've always wanted to go. As Leon spoke those words, a loud roar pounded my ears as water rushed down the tunnels. The current pushed me toward the ship. Only Leon's grip kept me from being washed away. As I looked at Leon's face, begging her not to let go, my sister merely smiled. Then, as the water rose over her head, she released my hand. And I was washed into the ship. The stretching didn't hurt. The tearing and rending and twisting of my body into something it was never meant to be was neither pain nor pleasure. I merely became the ship. I was the ship. I also wasn't alone. Melded into the ship with me were Cress and my little sister, along with the mayor and his men. However, while Cress and Leon hummed with excitement over what was to come, The mayor and his men screamed at me to help them. Not that I actually heard them. Instead, their fear and pain screamed directly to my mind. Unable to do anything and needing to focus on my own situation, I shut them out of my thoughts. Once my shock at the change ended, I felt around myself. The flood continued to carry water and nutrients into me, feeding the ship and strengthening all of us. As our energy grew, I felt beyond myself, feeling the ships in the air above the town, which called to us like parents urging scared children to come outside and play. As I reached out, I felt other ships under the ground with us, laying dormant here and there, many tied into the foundations of houses, 
others simply nestling in the dirt. All of them buzzed with life, but lacked the potential to actually leave. Not our ship. Cress, Lien, and I were ready to go. The ship had been ready for decades, ever since my sister had been washed into it. But she hadn't been strong enough to leave on her own. Her last memories, of fear and hope as I'd tried to save her, had trapped her here. She hadn't known where she wanted to go, or how to leave. So with Cress assisting me, we began to raise the ship, floating up on a million drops of thought. The ground around us tumbled and collapsed. What had been my home fell in on itself, tearing itself to shreds and rising in a burst of debris and rain as our ship fell into the sky. As Cress and my sister learned to control our ship, I watched the town disappear below us. I also felt deep into our world, learning the answer to questions I'd asked ever since my youth. Our world had no core. Instead, it existed as ripples of space-time folded onto themselves, creating the barest film of soap onto which the silt we lived off of continually fell. As the water and organics filtered down, they fed the new ships bubbling up from below, ships needing only someone with potential before they too could take flight. That was why we were forbidden to go underground. Doing so could damage the young ships. As we flew up, I felt the endless ships in the sky greet us. Across the world, ships appeared and disappeared, coming and going to different parts of the universe. And that's when I understood. Our world existed to remind humanity of who we were. Humanity only traveled the universe by first coming here, making sure that a ship's crew always remembered that they were human, no matter what changes they might soon go through. Likewise, when ships returned from elsewhere... They came back here to re-remember who they were. Otherwise, as humans traveled the vast distances and times of the universe, they would die. Without the dreams and hopes and everyday lives of our world's people, all humanity would fall apart. Some of us still fell apart. I felt the mayor and the two constables still screaming at the thought of all they could be. They didn't have the potential to survive outside our world. Instead... Their bodies, minds, and souls would be torn apart. When our ship one day returned to this world, the dust from their bodies would sprinkle down, helping to feed and create another human who might one day have the potential to understand eternity and survive. Worse, if they didn't die, they'd be so damaged that they could cause great harm to others. The ships which needlessly hurt our world were piloted by damaged people, storming across the world until the other ships stopped them. I felt Cress and Lien preparing to leave. Both of them focused on a distant galaxy where new stars and life boiled out of a massive expanse of gas and heat. I felt those distant stars, imagined the sights and wonders we would see. But even as I imagined us arriving there, and knew that imagining our trip would easily take us there, I heard one final plea from the men trapped with us. I was their last link to sanity. I remembered Lien as she'd held on to my hand, remembered how I'd sworn never to let someone drown if I could save them. With the briefest of thought caresses, I said goodbye to Cress and my sister. Cress said she'd take care of Lien help her grow into the limitless possibilities which existed before them, I then split myself from the ship, creating a smaller ball of ship which encompassed myself and the screaming men. As we fell toward the town, 
I imagined my old house in all its history and glory, in all it had ever been and could ever be. With an explosion of light and energy, the ship became what I willed it to be. The mayor and the constables woke in my den, surrounded by my books and furniture in a roaring fire in the ceramic fireplace. The mayor wretched upon waking, while the two constables cried and shook. I sat in my new old favorite chair and sipped a hot cup of tea, trying to overlook the limitations of these men. Finally, after he'd recovered enough to stand, the mayor ordered the constables to arrest me. On what charge? I asked. Violating the ban. You've been underground in a ship. I smiled and placed my teacup on the end table. For the briefest of moments, I removed the reality I'd crafted around them, showed them our world in all its glory. The mayor and the constables fell to the floor, screaming, "If you will excuse me, I have work to do." I said, "After all, someone has to see to the weather." Without another word, the mayor and constables scrambled to their feet and ran out the door. I now know I have the potential to see the universe. I always thought I'd be afraid to give up my life, but that's no longer true. I still watch the skies. However, instead of predicting the weather, I now simply know it. I caress each ship that passes through our world. I understand the beauties and wonders that ship and people have seen in their travels. In return for this knowledge, I gently remind the ship's people what it means to be human. I speak to them of the most important duty of humanity. Which is to care for those around you. I also keep watch over this world's people, seeking out those with the potential to embrace the greater universe and helping them toward that goal. One day, Cress and Lien will return, singing to me of all they've seen. I'll join them on that day and go off to see eternity. Until then, I enjoy the warm water falling from the skies and the dust of other people's dreams. And while I never speak a word of this to anyone, I also know that the ships don't bring the weather to our world. Instead, we are the weather, and the ships rise off our rain. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Jason. And a big thank you to Liz as well. Liz has done a couple of narrations for Starship Sofa as well. And uh, hopefully I will get some more. Next up is Jim Mowat on a little factorial about the day 42. Jim. Hello, my name's Jim, Jim Mowat. And Tony has asked me to do a fact section today. And it's probably a little different to the usual fact sections, in that a lot of it will be talking about an upcoming event. But to get to that, we have to talk about Douglas Adams and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So let's go back to the beginning. In the beginning, there was Douglas Adams, and he wrote a radio play. He named it the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And lo, it was a good radio play, which then became a book. The book became incredibly popular, and many copies were sold to lots of people, who read it and giggled mightily. 
Douglas Adams then wrote four more books to make five, and hence the Hitchhiker's Trilogy came into being. The people of the earth rejoiced and delighted in these highly amusing pieces of comedy science fiction that contained many notions for us to ponder, one of which is the story of the search for the answer to life, the universe, and everything. The answer, it seems, is 42. This answer was, of course, deeply disappointing. And deep thought suggested that perhaps to find out what the answer meant, you needed to find out what the real question was. A new and greater computer was built to calculate the question. This computer was of such a size that it was often mistaken for a planet, particularly by the ape-like beings who roamed its surface, looking at their digital watches. This was, of course, the Earth. It has been suggested that things may have gone awry, and a Trojan in the form of thousands of middle management types and telephone sanitizers has subverted the program, so we are no longer on course to discover the ultimate question. So now is the time. The signs are right. The day is coming where we come together to share our knowledge, maybe drink beer, and try to remember digital watchers. The 10th of October 2010 has been designated as 42 Day. It promises to be a very silly day indeed. In fact, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this to say about 42 Day. It is the nerdy celebration ever postulated by the ape-like beings of the third planet from a small unregarded yellow sun in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy. As every hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional being knows, 42 is the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything. This number has become inextricably entangled with the lives of the ape descendants of Earth, which was, after all, built in a failed attempt to find the ultimate question. Although the inhabitants of Earth can't tell you the question, they can tell you that the 10th of October will be a very significant day. The significance of this date hinges on a rather contrived little hop, skip and jump around the mathematics of it all. The date can be, and often is, written as 10-10-10. Even though the earthlings are so contrary that they won't even all agree on which way around the day and the month should be. Now this is where it gets excessively nerdy. 10-10-10 is the number 42 in binary. Now there may be one or two of you who don't generally count in binary. So... I'll make a slight diversion here, and we'll do a bit of counting. In decimal, we start off with single units, and count up to nine before the column is full, and we have to shift across to the next column, which is tens, and then hundreds, etc., etc., and so on. Binary is similar, with the columns and all, but instead of counting up to nine before shifting to the next column, we only count up to one. Let's look at the six-digit number, ten, ten, ten. As you look at the number, start at the right-hand side and you see a zero. So we have no ones. Next is a one. This means we have one two. If we had two twos, then we'd have four, and that would carry to the next column. But we don't, so it doesn't. If we had 
two fours, that will make eight and go to the next column. And we do, so it does. Next column, two eights to make 16, but we don't and it doesn't. But hey, look, we finished with 32 at the end there. So, from that binary number, we can extract 42 in decimal. One times two, one times eight, and one times 32. Add them all together and we get the answer to life, the universe, and everything. 42. So, on the 10th of October, 2010, fruits from all over the planet will be celebrating 42 Day, with trips on number 42 buses, cakes made from weird recipes, games of Scrabble, and possibly the odd pangalactic gargle blaster. There are currently events planned for London, Glasgow, Milwaukee, Warsaw, and Cordoba, with lots more being arranged every day. Join in the fun. Make badges, t-shirts and all sorts of cool stuff using our public domain 42-day logo. Arrange an event in your town. Let us know and we'll help publicise it for you. Watch the website at www.42day.com That's F-O-R-T-Y-T-W-O-D-A-Y dot com or there's a Facebook event which can be found in the Events tab on the ZZ9 Plural Z Alpha group on Facebook, and all the latest links and information can be found on the Twitter feed. That's at ZZ9 News. ZZ9 N-E-W-S. Find us there. Also on Twitter, you can look for the hash 42-day hashtag. Let's all do splendidly silly things on 42-day. See you there. Thank you, Jim. I hope everyone will take part. Now, next main fiction is One Shot by James Blish. This goes up against Jason Sanford's The Ships Like Clouds. Which one do you think? Like I say, you've got to make it work, so you've got to come over and vote. Little heads up for Blish. James Benjamin Blish was, according to Wikipedia, born on May the 23rd, 1921, died July the 30th, 1975, American author of fantasy and science fiction. Blish also wrote literary criticism of science fiction using the pen name William Athling Jr. Blish was born in East Orange, New Jersey. In the late 30s and 40s, Blish was one of the founding members of the Futarians. He trained at, as a biologist at Rutgers in Columbia University and spent 1942-44 as a medical technician in the US Army. He was actually credited with coining the term gas giant in the story Solar Plexus as it appeared in the anthology Beyond Human Ken which was edited by Judith Merrill. He was married to literary agent Virginia Kidd from 1947 to 1963. From 1962 to 68, he worked in the Tobacco Institute. And between 1967 and his death from lung cancer in 1975, Blish wrote authorised short story collections based upon the 1960s TV series Star Trek. Perhaps his most famous works were... The short stories which were collected in Cities in Flight, published in the Science Fiction Digest magazine, Outstanding Science Fiction. It's narrated by the man that opened up the show, Mr. Fred Heimbaugh. What a great lad he is. Ah, just give him a big hug. Fred, sir, you're a star. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present One Shot by James Blish. One Shot by James Benjamin Blish Read by Fred Heimbaugh 
On the day that the Polish freighter Ludmilla laid an egg in New York Harbor, Abner Longman's one-shot, Braun, was in the city going about his normal business, which was making another million dollars. As we found out later, almost nothing else was normal about that particular weekend for Braun. For one thing, he had brought his family with him, a complete departure from routine, reflecting the unprecedentedly legitimate nature of the deals he was trying to make. From every point of view, it was a bad weekend for the CIA to mix into his affairs, but nobody had explained that to the master of the Ludmilla. I had better add here that we knew nothing about this until afterward. From the point of view of the storyteller, an organization like Civilian Intelligence Associates gets to all its facts backwards, entering the tale at the payoff, working back to the hook, and winding up with a sheaf of background facts to feed into the computer for next time. It's rough on the various people who've tried to fictionalize what we do, particularly for the lazy examples of the breed who come to us expecting that their plotting has already been done for them. But it's inherent in the way we operate, and there it is. Certainly nobody at CIA so much as thought of Braun when the news first came through. Harry Anderton, the Harbor Defense Chief, called us at 08.30 Friday to take on the job of identifying the egg. This was when our records show us officially entering the affair, but, of course, Anderton had been keeping the wires to Washington streaming for an hour before that, getting authorization to spend some of his money on us. Our clearance status was then, and is now, CNR, clean and routine. I was in the central office when the call came through and had some difficulty in making out precisely what Anderton wanted of us. Slow down, Colonel Anderton, please, I begged him. Two or three seconds won't make much difference. How did you find out about this egg in the first place? The automatic compartment bulkheads on the Ludmilla were defective, he said. It seemed that this egg was buried among a lot of other crates in the dump cell of the hold. What's a dump cell? It's a sea lock of for getting rid of dangerous cargo. The bottom of it opens right to Davy Jones, standard fitting for ships carrying explosives, radioactives, anything that might act up unexpectedly. All right, I said, go ahead. Well, there was a timer on the dump cell floor, set to drop the egg when the ship came up the river. That worked fine, but the automatic bulkheads that are supposed to keep the rest of the ship from being flooded while the cells open didn't. At least, they didn't do a thorough job. The Ludmilla began to list, and the captain yelled for help. When the harbor patrol found the dump cell open, they called us in. I see. I thought about it a moment. In other words, you don't know whether the Ludmilla really laid an egg or not. That's what I keep trying to explain to you, Dr. Harris. We don't know what she dropped, and we haven't any way of finding out. It could be a bomb. It could be anything. We're sweating everybody on board the ship now, but it's my guess that none of them know anything. The whole procedure was designed to be automatic. All right, we'll take it, I said. You've got divers down? Sure, but we'll worry about the butts from here on. Get us a direct line from your barge to the big board here so we can direct the work. Better get on over here yourself. Right. He sounded relieved. 
Official people have a lot of confidence in CIA. Too much, in my estimation. Someday the job will come along that we can't handle, and then Washington will be kicking itself, or more likely some scapegoat, for having failed to develop a comparable government department. Not that there was much prospect in Washington's doing that. Official thinking had been running in the other direction for years. The precedent was the Associated Universities organization which ran Brookhaven. CIA had been started the same way, by a loose corporation of universities and industries, all of which had wanted to own an Ultimac, and no one of which had had the money to buy one for itself. The Eisenhower administration, with its emphasis on private enterprise and concomitant reluctance to sink federal funds into projects of such size, had turned the two examples into a nice fat trend, which Ultimac herself said wasn't going to be reversed within the practicable lifetime of CIA. I buzzed for two staffers, and in five minutes got Clark Cheney and Joan Hadamard, CIA's business manager and social science division chief, respectively. The titles were almost solely for the benefit of the T.O., That is, Clark and Joan do serve in those capacities, but said service takes about 2% of their capacities and their time. I shot them a couple of sentences of explanation, trusting them to pick up whatever else they needed from the tape, and checked the line to the diver's barge. It was already open. Anderton had gone to work quickly and with decision once he was sure we were taking on the major question. The television screen lit, but nothing showed on it but murky light, striped with streams of darkness slowly rising and falling. The audio went clonk, tong, oink, monk, oink. Underwater noises, shapeless and characterless. Hello, out there in the harbor, this is CIA, Harris calling. Come in, please. Monig here, the audio said. Moink, oink, oink. Got anything yet? Not a thing, Dr. Harris, Monig said. You can't see three inches in front of your face down here. It's too silty. We've bumped into a couple of crates, but so far, no egg. Keep trying. Cheney, looking even more like a bulldog than usual, was setting his stopwatch by one of the eight clocks on Ultimac's face. Want me to take the divers, he said. No, Clark, not yet. I'd rather have Joan do it for the moment. I passed the mic to her. You'd better run the probability series first. Check. He began feeding tape into the integrator's mouth. What's your angle, Peter? The ship. I want to see how heavily shielded that dump cell is. It isn't shielded at all, Anderton's voice said behind me. I hadn't heard him come in. But that doesn't prove anything. The egg might have carried sufficient shielding in itself. Or maybe the commies didn't care whether the crew was exposed or not. Or maybe there isn't any egg. All that's possible, I admitted. But I want to see it anyhow. Have you taken blood tests? Joan asked Anderton. Yes. Get the reports through to me, then. I want white cell counts, differentials, platelet counts, hematocrit, and sed rates on every man. Anderton picked up the phone, and I took a firm hold on the doorknob. Hey, Anderton said, putting the phone down again. Are you going to duck out just like that? Remember, Dr. Harris, we've got to evacuate the city first of all, no matter whether it's a real egg or not. We can't take the chance on it not being an egg.
Don't move a man until you get a go-ahead from the CIA, I said. For all we know now, evacuating the city may be just what the enemy wants us to do, so that they can grab it unharmed. Or they may want to start a panic for some other reason. Any one of fifty possible reasons. You can't take such a gamble, he said grimly. There are eight and a half million lives riding on it. I can't let you do it. You passed your authority to us when you hired us, I pointed out. If you want to evacuate without our okay, you'll have to fire us first. It'll take another hour to get that cleared from Washington, so you might as well give us that hour. He stared at me for a moment, his lips thinned. Then he picked up the phone again to order Joan's blood count, and I got out of the door fast. A reasonable man would have said that I found nothing useful on the Ludmilla except negative information. But the fact is that anything I found would have been a surprise to me. I went down looking for surprises. I found nothing but a faint trail to Abner Longman's Brown, most of which was fifteen years cold. There'd been a time when I'd known Braun, briefly and to no profit to either of us. As an undergraduate majoring in social sciences, I'd taken on a term paper on the old International Longshoremen's Association, a racket-ridden union now formally extinct, although anyone who knew the signs could still pick up some traces on the docks. In those days, Braun had been the business manager of an insurance firm, the sole visible function of which had been to write policies for the ILA and its individual dock wallopers. For some reason, he had been amused by the brash youngster who barged in on him and demanded the lowdown, and had shown me considerable lengths of ropes not normally in view of the public. Nothing incriminating, but enough to give me a better insight into how the union operated than I had had any right to expect, or even suspect. Hence, I was surprised to hear somebody on the docks remark that Braun was in the city over the weekend. It would never have occurred to me that he still interested himself in the waterfront, for he'd gone respectable with a vengeance. He was still a professional gambler, and according to what he had told the Congressional Investigating Committee last year, took in thirty to $50,000 a year at it. But his gambles were no longer concentrated on horses, the numbers, or shady insurance deals. Nowadays, what he did was called investment, mostly in real estate. Realtors knew him well as the man who had almost bought the Empire State Building. The almost in the equation stands for the moment when the shoestring broke. Joan had been following his career, too, not because she had ever met him, but because, for her, he was a type study in the evolution of what she called the extra-legal ego. With personalities like that, respectability is a disease, she told me. There's always an almost open conflict between the desire to be powerful and the desire to be accepted. Your ordinary criminal is a moral imbecile, but people like Braun are damned with a conscience, and sooner or later they crack trying to appease it. I'd sooner try to crack a Timken bearing, I'd said, Braun's ten-point steel all the way through. Don't you believe it? The symptoms are showing all over him. Now he's backing Broadway plays, sponsoring beginning actresses, joining playwrights groups. He's the only member of Bushkin and Brush who's never written a play, acted in one, or so much as pulled the rope to raise the curtain. That's investment, I said. That's his business. 
Peter, you're only looking at the surface. His real investments almost never fail, but the plays he backs always do. They have to. He's sinking money into them to appease his conscience, and if they were to succeed, it would double his guilt instead of salving it. It's the same way with the young actresses. He's not sexually interested in them. His type never is, because living a rigidly orthodox family life is part of the effort toward respectability. He's backing them to pay his debt to society. In other words, they're talismans to keep him out of jail. It doesn't seem like a very satisfactory substitute. Of course it isn't, Joan had said. The next thing he'll do is go in for direct public service, giving money to hospitals or something like that. You watch. She had been right. Within the year, Braun had announced the founding of an association for clearing the Detroit slum area where he had been born, the plainest kind of symbolic suicide. Let's not have any more Abner Longman Brauns born down here. It depressed me to see it happen, for next on Joan's agenda for Braun was an entry into politics as a fighting liberal, a new dealer twenty years too late. Since I'm mildly liberal myself, when I'm off duty, I hated to think what Braun's career might tell me about my own motives, if I'd let it. All of which had nothing to do with why I was prowling around the Ludmilla. Or did it? I kept remembering Anderton's challenge. You can't take such a gamble. There are eight and a half million lives riding on it. That put it up into Braun's normal operating area, all right. The connection was still hazy, but on the grounds that any link might be useful, I phoned him. He remembered me instantly. Like most uneducated, power-driven men, he had a memory as good as any machine's. "'You never did send me that paper you were going to write,' he said. His voice seemed absolutely unchanged, although he was in his seventies now. "'You promised you would.' "'Kids don't keep their promises as well as they should,' I said. "'But I've still got copies, and I'll see to it that you get one this time. "'Right now I need another favor.' Something right up your alley. CIA business? Yes, I didn't know you knew I was with CIA. Braun chuckled. I still know a thing or two, he said. What's the angle? That I can't tell you over the phone, but it's the biggest gamble there ever was, and I think we need an expert. Can you come down to CIA central headquarters right away? Yeah, if it's that big. If it ain't, I got lots of business here, Andy. And I ain't gonna be in town long. You sure it's top stuff? My word on it. He was silent a moment. Then he said, Andy, send me your paper. The paper? Sure, but... Then I got it. I'd given him my word. You'll get it, I said. Thanks, Mr. Braun. I called headquarters and sent a messenger to my apartment to look for one of those long, dusty, blue folders with the legal-length sheets inside of them with orders to scorch it over to Braun without stopping to breathe more than once. Then I went back myself. The atmosphere had changed. Anderton was sitting by the big desk, clenching his fists and sweating. His whole posture telegraphed his controlled helplessness. Cheney was bent over a seismograph, echo-sounding for an egg through the river bottom. 
If that even had a prayer of working, I knew, he'd have had the trains of the Hudson and Manhattan stopped. Their rumbling course through their tubes would have blanked out any possible echo pip from the egg. Wild goose chase, Joan said, scanning my face. Not quite. I've got something, if I can just figure out what it is. Remember one-shot Braun? Yes, what's he got to do with it? Nothing, I said, but I want to bring him in. I don't think we'll lick this project before deadline without him. What good is a professional gambler on a job like this? He'll just get in the way. I looked toward the television screen, which now showed an amorphous black mass jutting up from a foundation of even deeper black. Is that operation getting you anywhere? Nothing's got us anywhere. Anderton interjected harshly. We don't even know if that's the egg. The whole area is littered with crates. Harris, you've got to let me get that alert out. Clark, how's the time going? Cheney consulted the stopwatch. Deadline in 29 minutes, he said. All right, let's use those minutes. I'm beginning to see this thing a little clearer. Joan, what we've got here is a one-shot gamble, right? In effect, she said cautiously. And it's my guess that we're never going to get the answer by diving for it. Not in time, anyhow. Remember when the Navy lost a barge load of shells in the harbor back in 52? They scrabbled for them for a year and never pulled up a one. They finally had to warn the public that if it found anything funny-looking along the shore, it shouldn't bang said object or shake it either. We're better equipped than the Navy was then, but we're working against a deadline. If you'd admitted that earlier, Anderson said hoarsely, we'd have half a million people out of the city by now, maybe even a million. We haven't given up yet, Colonel. The point is this, Joan. What we need is an inspired guess. Get anything from the Prob series, Clark? I thought not. On a one-shot gamble of this kind, the laws of chance are no good at all. For that matter, the so-called ESP experiments showed us long ago that even the way we construct random tables is full of holes, and that a man with a feeling for the essence of a gamble can make a monkey out of chance almost at will. And if there ever was such a man, Braun is it. That's why I asked him to come down here. I want him to look at that lump on the screen and play a hunch. You're out of your mind, Anderson said. A decorous knock spared me the trouble of having to deny, affirm, or ignore the judgment. It was Braun. The messenger had been fast, and the gambler hadn't bothered to read what a college student had thought of him fifteen years ago. He came forward and held out his hand, while the others looked him over frankly. He was impressive, all right. It would have been hard for a stranger to believe that he was aiming at respectability. To the eye, he was already there. He was tall and spare, and walked perfectly erect, not without spring despite his age. His clothing was as far from that of a gambler as you could have taken it by design. A black double-breasted suit with a thin vertical stripe, a gray silk tie with a pearl stick pin just barely large enough to be visible at all, a black Humburg, all perfectly fitted, all worn with proper casualness. One might almost say a formal casualness. It was only when he opened his mouth that one-shot Braun was in the suit with him.
I come over as soon as your runner got to me, he said. What's the pitch, Andy? Mr. Braun, this is Joan Hadamard, Clark Cheney, Colonel Anderton. I'll be quick, because we need speed now. A Polish ship has dropped something out of the harbor. We don't know what it is. It may be a hell bomb, or maybe it's just somebody's old laundry. Obviously, we've got to find out which, and we want you to tell us. Braun's aristocratic eyebrows went up. Me? Hell, Andy, I don't know nothing about things like that. I'm surprised with you. I thought CIA had all the brains it needed. Ain't you got machines to tell you answers like that? I pointed silently to Joan, who had gone back to work the moment the introductions were over. She was still on the mic to the divers. She was saying, What does it look like? It's just a lump of something, Dr. Hadamard. Can't even tell the shape. It's buried too deeply in the mud. Glonk. Oing, oing. Try the Geiger. We did. Nothing but background. Scintillation counter? Nothing, Dr. Hedemard. Could be it's shielded. Let us do the guessing, Monig. All right, maybe it's got a clockwork fuse that didn't break with the impact. Or a gyroscopic fuse. Stick a stethoscope on it and see if you pick up ticking or anything that sounds like a motor running. There was a lag, and I turned back to Braun. As you can see, we're stymied. This is a long shot, Mr. Braun. One throw of the dice. One showdown hand. We've got to have an expert call it for us. Somebody with a record of hits on long shots. That's why I called you. It's no good, he said. He took off the Hamburg, took his handkerchief from his breast pocket, and wiped the hat band. I can't do it. Why not? It ain't my kind of ting, he said. Look, I never in my life run odds on anything that made any difference. But this makes a difference. If I guess wrong, then we're all dead ducks. But why should you guess wrong? Your hunches have been working for 60 years now. Braun wiped his face. No, you don't get it. I wish you'd listen to me. Look, my wife and my kids are in the city. It ain't on my life, it's theirs too. That's what I care about. That's why it's no good. On things that matter to me, my hunches don't work. I was stunned, and so I could see where Joan and Cheney. I suppose I should have guessed it, but it had never occurred to me. Ten minutes, Cheney said. I looked at Braun. He was frightened. Again, I was surprised without having any right to be. I tried to keep at least my voice calm. Please try it anyhow, Mr. Braun, as a favor. It's already too late to do it any other way. And if you guess wrong, the outcome won't be any worse than if you don't try at all. My kids, he whispered. I don't think he knew he was speaking aloud. I waited. Then his eyes seemed to come back to the present. All right, he said. I told you the truth, Andy. Remember that. So, is it a bomb or ain't it? That's what's up for grabs, right? I nodded. He closed his eyes. An unexpected stab of pure fright went down my back. Without the eyes, Braun's face was a death mask. The water sounds and the irregular ticking of a Geiger counter seemed to spring out from the audio speaker, four times as loud as before. I could even hear the pen of the seismograph scribbling away, 
until I looked at the instrument and saw that Clark had stopped it, probably long ago. Droplets of sweat began to form along Brown's forehead and his upper lip. The handkerchief remained crushed in his hand. Anderton said, Of all the fool... Hush, Joan said quietly. Slowly, Braun opened his eyes. All right, he said. You guys wanted it this way. I say it's a bomb. He stared at us for a moment more, and then all at once, the Timken bearing burst. Words poured out of it. Now you guys do something. Do your job like I did mine. Get my wife and kids out of there. Empty the city. Do something. Do something. Anderton was already grabbing for the phone. You're right, Mr. Braun. If it isn't too late. Cheney shot out his hand and caught Anderton's telephone arm by the wrist. Wait a minute, he said. What do you mean, wait a minute? Haven't you already shot enough time? Cheney did not let go. Instead, he looked inquiringly at Joan and said, One minute, Joan. You might as well go ahead. She nodded and spoke into the mic. Monig, unscrew the cap. Unscrew the cap, the audio squawked. But Dr. Hedemard, if that sets it off, it won't go off. That's the one thing you can be sure it won't do. What is this? Anderton demanded. And what's this deadline stuff anyhow? The cap's off, Monig reported. We're getting plenty of radiation now. Just a minute. Yeah, Dr. Hedemard, it's a bomb, all right. But it hasn't got a fuse. Now, how could they have made a fool mistake like that? In other words, it's a dud, Joan said. That's right, a dud. Now, at last, Braun wiped his face, which was quite gray. I told you the truth, he said grimly. My hunches don't work on stuff like this. But they do, I said. I'm sorry we put you through the ringer. And you too, Colonel. But we couldn't let an opportunity like this slip. It was too good a chance for us to test how our facilities would stand up in a real bomb drop. A real drop, Anderton said. Are you trying to say that the CIA staged this? You ought to be shot, the whole pack of you. No, not exactly, I said. The enemy's responsible for the drop, all right. We got word last month from our man in Gdynia that they were going to do it and that the bomb would be on board the Ludmilla. As I say, it was too good an opportunity to miss. We wanted to find out just how long it would take us to figure out the nature of the bomb, which we didn't know in detail after it was dropped here. So we had our people in Gdynia defuse the thing after it was put on board the ship, but otherwise leave it entirely alone. Actually, you see, your hunch was right on the button as far as it went. We didn't ask you whether or not the object was a live bomb. We asked you whether it was a bomb or not. You said it was, and you were right. The expression on Braun's face was exactly like the one he had worn when he had been searching for his decision, except that, since his eyes were open, I could see that it was directed at me. If this was the old days, he said in an ice-cold voice, I might have made the colonel's idea come true. I don't go for tricks like this, Andy. It was more than a trick, Clark put in. You'll remember that we had a deadline on the test, Mr. Braun. Obviously, in a real drop, we wouldn't have had all the time in the world to figure out what kind of a thing had been dropped. If we had still failed to establish that when the deadline ran out, we would have had to allow evacuation of the city, 
with all the attendant risk that that was exactly what the enemy wanted us to do. So? So we failed the test, I said. At one minute short of the deadline, Joan had the divers unscrew the cap. In a real drop, that would have resulted in a detonation. If the bomb was real, we'd never risk it. That we did do it in the test was a concession of failure, an admission that our usual methods didn't come through for us in time. And that means you were the only person who did come through, Mr. Braun. If a real bomb drop ever comes, we're going to have to have you here as an active part of our investigation. Your intuition for the one-shot gamble was the one thing that bailed us out this time. Next time, it may save eight million lives. There was quite a long silence. All of us, Anderton included, watched Braun intently, but his impassive face failed to show any trace of how his thoughts were running. When he did speak at last, what he said must have seemed insanely irrelevant to Anderton, and maybe to Cheney too, and perhaps it meant nothing more to Joan than the final clinical note in a case history. It's funny, he said. I was thinking of running for Congress next year from my district. But maybe this is more important. It was, I believe, the sigh of a man at peace with himself. And that's it. Which one would you like to see the winner? Don't forget, come over and vote. Big thank you to Fred. Big thank you to Lizanne, everyone who's taken part in this show. Jim Mowat, Jason Sanford, thank you so much. That is Aura's Light Show 150. Within a few days, we will find out if Starship Sova has made total history by winning one of the Hugo, coveted Hugo Awards. Wow, how freaking cool is that, man? <laughs> Listen, because I will, yes, I will. I'll certainly try and get a show out straight after the announcements, you know, whoever's won. And you'll either hear me weep like a baby or scream like a kitty. Who can tell? But I am just so excited to be in this kind of run and fantastic. So until then, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.